What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here at long last with Alex Trambath from the Breakthrough Institute. How you doing, bud? I'm doing great, Emmett. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm stoked to have you here. I've been reading your writing for a while, obviously seeing you around uh, Twitter, talking about a lot of the same things. Um, and so I'm glad we get to finally do this. And also, this is the first time I have talked to a fellow St. Ignatius graduate, um, even though we went to different campuses for that. So uh, that feels nice. It's nice when you get like rare little uh, connections like that. Love, love a good, uh, love a good Jesuit alumnus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, look, I actually don't know a ton about you, despite having read a bunch of your stuff. So, let me just ask the big dumb question: How'd you get to where you are? Yeah, um, it's uh, it is always a good place to start, right? And I and I actually think that even though it's a, it's an it's a kind of typical way to start these sort of podcast conversations. I feel like it would be helpful to know about more sort of participants in the energy climate nuclear debate because mm -hmm. it's it's so revealing, I think, the sort of personal origin story. And uh, you know, for me, it it um it all sort of began um in in college in a way you know i was i was raised by academic theologians first in mm. the midwest and then in in california oh, oh fellow then, midwesterner too how about yeah, that I'm, I'm from indiana originally <laughs> okay, cool. uh, but I've, I've been here for in the bay i live in oakland uh for almost 25 years now um so as you know raised with a sort of care for the environment um was sort of inspired to pursue environmental studies by an elective that i took at St. Ignatius in San Francisco, um, a course that I took my senior year called Nature Nexus that combined theology and nature writing and ecology. Mm. Oh, it was a really incredible course. And I, I was studying environmental issues at Berkeley and getting sort of increasingly activated and anxious about climate change um, and the need to, you know, degrow the economy and, mm -hmm. to, uh, and to pursue a less consumerist lifestyle and to overthrow capitalism and to go 100% renewables and you know on, on all these things and playing I, the hits. yeah just playing the hits exactly uh you know sort of rachel carson paul ehrlich totally, uh murray, totally. murray bookchin you know um this is at uc berkeley and i sort of accidentally stumbled into the writings and research of a at the time brand new organization called the breakthrough institute which uh, I found in sort of equal amounts initially intriguing and offensive. And, <laughs> um, you know, they were they were writing about how sort of regulations and carbon taxes were not going to get us all the way to a sort of deeply decarbonized future. They were doing the real sort of decarbonization math, like how many solar panels and how many electric vehicles it would take to replace the fossil fuel technology that spans the globe. And that's the, that's kind of analysis I had ne never seen before, um, yeah. even though at this point I've been studying energy and, and environment for years. Um, and they're being sort of very vocal and, and in many ways very aggressive in their criticism of, for instance, the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill, which was being mm -hmm. debated on the floors of Congress at the time. Um, so they were not being sort of like good 
progressive, what we now call climate hawks. Mm -hmm. um, and they were sort of excoriated for that. And I, I, I joined in the antipathy for a while, but just as I took more courses in energy technology, environmental economics, energy systems, the type of thinking at the Breakthrough Institute started to make more sense to me. Um, and I, you know, as I like to say, there's there's no zealot like a convert. And so over the course of my undergraduate years, I became sort of fully eco-modernized, even though eco-modernism didn't exactly exist at the time, um, and ended up getting a fellowship at the Breakthrough Institute my summer after senior year of college, and figured that I would be at Breakthrough for a few years, maybe go to DC, maybe go back to graduate school. But, you know, the longer I was here, the stronger a need in the world I felt for breakthroughian thinking, as we like to say, for eco-modernism, mm -hmm. for a new kind of environmentalism. And, you know, there's more pushback on sort of catastrophism today. There's mm -hmm. a you know, significantly broader coalition and support of low carbon technologies, all the sort of fundamental building blocks of eco-modernism, of, of breakthroughian thought. Um, but there's still a bunch of really bad environmental thinking out there. It crops up all over the place. And so I think there's still a real urgent need for this place. And, you know, this is the main place to, to do that, to sort of build a new kind of environmentalism for the 21st century. And so, you know, the longer I've been here, the easier it's been for me to stay and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, the, more, and the more work, in fact, that I see for us to do in the world. So that's me and my sort of, narrative in a nutshell i'm really yeah i love that because one of the themes that uh that comes up over and over again on the show when i end up talking to advocates is they're like i had this idea of how things were and like it was highly negative and then as i became more situated in like material analysis of the situation the more that anxiety went down and then a new call to action emerged. Um, and it, I know that the Breakthrough Institute has taken tons of heat. I remember, I think, uh, was it you and Ted or just Ted uh, ended up publishing something in Jacobin um, about- It was it was Ted Nordhaus, our executive director, and Alex yeah. Smith, the other Alex at the Breakthrough Institute. The other Institute. Alex, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I was, the level of vitriol that Usher Forrest was both- um, Shocking in intensity and unsurprising <laughs> in volume, I would say. Um, so what's that been like over there to sort of, because you've written very thoughtfully about the need to sort of challenge environmentalism from the inside, because if you don't do that, like full, like down to its roots, it will always be this kind of Malthusian degrowth thing. Have you guys made, have you made progress? Have you guys made progress? How do people see breakthrough now as compared to a few years ago? Just give me the rundown. I mean, I think we've absolutely made progress. You know, breakthrough as an organization, just in size, has like quintupled um, since I joined in wow. 2011. You know, we're still in many ways a smaller sort of perennially startup style think tank. You know, there's about 26 or 27 of us on staff now, but that's a lot more than uh, we had when I started, we've got this really incredible team of climate scientists and economists and plant geneticists and nuclear engineers and policy mm -hmm. experts, two offices, one in Berkeley, one in DC. Um, and yeah, I think that eco-modernism 
if it's not like a household brand now, is really sort of understood um, not just as an alternative to sort of conventional environmentalism, but as a pretty coherent one. And I think that um, it's it's worth sort of um, dwelling on the, the Jacobin essay that my colleagues yeah. Ted and Alex wrote uh, to illustrate that. Um, so obviously we have been critical of environmentalism, environmental activism, environmental advocacy, environmental philosophy um, for the entirety of our existence. Um, mm -hmm. It's always been really important to us that at the same time as we're doing that deconstruction of the bad ideas of conventional environmentalism, that we are offering our, our own sort of reconstruction, but what we broadly call eco-modernism. And, you know, nowhere is that more offensive to our sort of, you know, opponents um, and, and critics than when we do so sort of in the institutions and in the pages of the political left or the mm -hmm. or the sort of political progressive wing. And so when my colleagues Ted and Alex show up in Jacobin, you know, a according to Hoyle socialist magazine, mm -hmm. um, using sort of, or, you know, sort of foundational Marxist materialist thought to critique the extremely, we would, we would say sort of bourgeois elitist, um, romantic, r romantic, uh, slow food movement that's inculcated mm -hmm. by sort of wealthy people in, in Berkeley and Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um, then th that is, that is sort of um, the that's sort of the biggest trigger that we can pull um, uh, because we are not actually sort of um, drooling, fire breathing, climate denialist, flat earthers. Right. Uh, we actually overwhelmingly at the Breakthrough Institute come from some corner of the left. Not all of us, you know. Mm -hmm. Eco modernism very intentionally is a big tent, and we we like to say at Breakthrough that we're sort of at least transpartisan, unclassifiably ideological in, in the classical sense, but mm -hmm. we all sort of, you know, just you know, just selection effects. We're all, um, we all have a basic interest or background in environmental thought. Um, and because of the way that environmentalism has intentionally polarized over the last mm -hmm. half century or so, that means that we have been just sort of breathing sort of left or center left or even at times radical left thought um and and i think um uh, that makes it a, a lot more sort of um triggering and difficult for our uh, our, our sort of erstwhile opponents and, and critics uh to deal with um because they're they're used to i think dealing with whether it's sort of uh, you know like oil company CEOs or, or, you know, sort of climate denying politicians or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, I, I think they, uh, they literally don't have the sort of, uh, at, at times, uh, the instincts to, to deal with, uh, criticism from the left. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I, th and I think that that is, uh, it's just a sort of an uh, illustrative dynamic. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'll I'll pause there. Yeah, I mean, so as somebody who used to be like a card carrying member of both the IWW and the DSA, um, you know, I one one of the things that a few friends of mine who were perhaps a little more heterodox or however you want to put it would always say is like it feels like the only place we can't do class analysis is on the left. Um, you know, like we can't apply that lens to the thing itself, which to me is sort of like an interesting story of living in the long seventies.
and the way in which as the labor movements died in this or just became reconstituted and away from the quote unquote means of production, uh, a new breed, the new left sort of asserted itself. I mean, we see that now, right? Like the United Auto Workers um, is now being flooded with uh, grad students and grad workers. And I don't object to anybody's right to organize, of course. But I mean, at some point, they're going to have to change the name to United Academic Workers. You know, uh, yeah, it just won't yeah, be the exactly. same. It won't be the same thing. Uh, and it'll have very different ideological presuppositions and very different needs for its own constituency. And some of those will fall right in line with some of the, I would say, and you seem to say, like, more bourgeois progressive affectations. So let me ask you this question. What's been, in your experience, the most persuasive way to sort of make the case for eco-modernism and to draw those on the opposite side into the tent? Because as you said, you guys have made progress uh, you've grown in size, your signal's bigger, and as you said at the top, people are starting to get a little more skeptical about their own positions around climate and the environment. Yeah, so it's a, it's sort of a it's a it's a sort of double-sided coin. So on, on the one hand, you know, sort of environmentalism, it comes out of uh, early 20th century conservation movement, which was basically rich people trying to wall off Yosemite and other parks mm -hmm. as sort of uh, places where they can recreate, not places where um, we're going to do sort of production timber forests, and certainly not places where local indigenous people are going to be allowed to, to continue <laughs> right, living. Yeah. Um, it comes out of, uh, it comes largely out of a sort of uh, overpopulation fear and, and deeply sort of eugenics inflected uh, intellectual movement led by folks like Garrett Hardin and Paul Ehrlich. And it comes out of a sort of elite reaction against modernity. Um, mm -hmm. It comes out of Rachel Carson's writing about uh, about DDT and pesticides and nuclear. It comes it comes again out of uh, out of Paul Ehrlich um, describing his fears, his sort of visceral disgust with the modernizing India when he travels to the developing world. And it comes out of organizations like Friends of the Earth and Union for Concerned Scientists, which are literally founded to oppose nuclear technologies. Yeah. Um, so it's this uh, it's this elite project in the rich world that offers a particular and at times we think quite mistaken understanding of the relationship between humans, technology, and nature. Uh, and that's a very difficult project to overcome. And it's it, increasingly difficult as the sort of echelons of environmentalism and on the and of the political left, not just in the United States, but in, in Europe as well, have become sort of concentrated by more and more elites, right? You know, mm -hmm. this is this is not a a project of the working class anymore. Um, it, it is overwhelmingly a, pro a project of sort of college graduates, um, mm -hmm. whether they're activists or whether they're academic professors, and that's uh, a very difficult sort of cohort um, effect to confront, and a very difficult sort of ideological stickiness to unstick. Um, at the same time, it is an, an elite project. Um, and we find that eco-modernism, the idea that humans and nature can both benefit from technological mm -hmm. innovation and economic growth, 
has a lot of purchase outside of especially sort of progressive elite circles. It has a mm. lot of purchase among uh, li sort of literal working class union uh, sectors. It has a, a lot of uh, a lot of purchase among more sort of moderate and conservative factions uh, that do care about the environment, but are not really on the climate catastrophism train mm -hmm. and has a lot of purchase in low and middle income countries that are that are still sort of working their way up the energy and agricultural ladder. Um, which again is why I, I, I said earlier that I think breakthrough and eco-modernism have seen so much progress in you know in the last 15 mm -hmm. years since our founding. Eco-modernism is really a an environmentalism that makes sense for almost everybody outside of the sort of largely sort of bourgeois elite project that has sort of made up conventional environmentalism to date. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's been interesting, you know, I mostly publish in uh, either heterodox or right-leaning publications, um, you know, everywhere from Spectator to Claremont Institute uh, uh, offshoots. And one of the things, the difficult conversations that conservatives seem to be having is they don't know how to locate their own stances on green policy or if they need an environmentalism um, and what it should look like. Uh, you know, I think but there's a lot of people who want to sort of like say, well, we should just do Roger Scruton. Uh, but I would say that he only makes sense in uh, the UK and we already have one and his name is Wendell Berry. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, anybody whose constituency continues to be people working within the fossil fuel industry should be very, very wary of uh, adopting that. But I think that there's sort of like this interesting uh, thing that's changed now, the now that the Inflation Reduction Act has shown up um, and to sort of bridge all of this it seems like now on the american right it's like okay we have to have a response to this we don't know what it is but like these policies are happening whether we want them to or not uh and we need to have a version of this and then i've noticed and you can tell me whether or not you agree with this i'd love to hear your thoughts that it seems like there's almost this um uh put up or shut up moment for the uh when solar batteries cloud crowd where there is like way less uh panic and more like how do we build the transmission lines like now they're freaking out about sort of the monster that they've created to get to where they are that's absolutely what's happening and you know it's a depends on what side of the bed i wake up on sometimes i see it as a growing mm -hmm. pain and sometimes i see it as a, a sort of rock hard place situation sure, in our sure. environmental politics and in our decarbonization policy um but i mean big picture what happened here so um what you uh, environmentalism is a reaction to an industrial modernity right it's a, mm -hmm. it's a reaction to large infrastructure, lar you know, sort of large scale technology, whether that's Rachel Carson writing about industrial agriculture or, or, or Paul Ehrlich writing about the bigness of our population mm -hmm. or David Brower leaving the Sierra Club to oppose like, you know, one nuclear power plant on the coast of, of California and, and, and all of the nuclear power that it represents. Um, in place of that sort of large scale industrial modernity, they offer renewable energy technologies that would mm -hmm. harmonize human societies with nature. They offer mm -hmm. non-industrial pesticides, non-industrial fertilized, like 
unmechanized in many ways agriculture mm -hmm. um, that is labor intensive and again sort of in harmony with with nature um, so that's where organic comes from that's where renewable comes from uh, it, it they are they are sort of you know uh, sort of foundational ideas to the environmentalist project that gets founded by you know again friends of the earth sierra club um uh and you know natural resources defense council later uh union of concerned scientists um and you know these organizations um push for things like organic certification which happens in the 80s they push for things like renewable portfolio standards which happened in the, in the 80s and 90s but what happens unsurprisingly <laughs> Um, to, to those of us who actually sort of um, uh, understand sort of energy systems and, and things like that is, uh, is that the tools of the environmental project go large scale. You mm -hmm. know, when, when you actually start to see uh, organic practices take root in the United States, the, the first thing that happens is that big farms, you know, sort of actually buy up the organic farms and start using the organic practices so that they can sell marked up produce and yeah. uh, and and food at Safeways, right? Uh, the renewable portfolio standards are are not actually sort of creating these small scale bucolic, you know, sort of self contained residences with solar panels um, and you know a hot water uh, energy storage system in the bottom, like Amory Lovins imagines in the mm -hmm. 1970s. They're creating these huge wind farms and these big solar farms. Um, uh, which is not which is not necessarily a bad thing, but is is also entirely antithetical to the idea of renewable energy as an as an environmental good as it was posited by yes. E. F. Schumacher, by Murray Bookchin, by Amory Lovins. Um, and th so this has been obvious for decades, um, and it's really reached ahead in the last five years or so as uh, as, as solar and wind and lithium ion batteries have. Uh, you know, have, have accelerated in their deployment um, in, uh, you know, in all, all over the sort of uh, world, in, including the rich world, um, which has led to more land use conflicts over the deployment of energy infrastructure, not just the renewable energy projects, but the transmission that is required to build them, and has led to some, uh, so, so, some frankly, um, uh, you know, awkward, um, at, at the very least, um, conversations about supply chain concerns yeah. um, for this decarbonizing energy technology, uh, whether that's really emissions intensive battery manufacturing or, uh, or, or the solar supply chain, which is extremely concentrated um, in, uh, in regions of China that rely on functionally slave labor from the Uyghur population in, in China. Um, and so that's sort of the, the renewable energy system that we, um, that we have built today. Um, and you know, at, at Breakthrough, I'd say we think that renewable energy deployment um, is, is a positive, but there's obviously quite a bit of work to do on mediating sort of land use conflicts and obviously cleaning up the, the supply chains that go into decarbonizing our economy. But now that it's pretty obvious to ignore um, the, the, the fundamental scale issue mm -hmm. of, um, uh, of decarbonization, of, uh, of even renewables, uh, the sort of marriage of convenience that existed between 
clean energy industries, solar, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, and environmentalists that invented these concepts of renewable energy or whatever in the first place, that marriage of convenience is being tested now. Now that the clean energy industries have actually secured perpetual subsidies for their technologies, uh, you know, the the sort of the the newly rejuvenated investment tax credit and the production tax credit and the new tax credits for for electric vehicles and things like that you know i think they sort of putatively expire in like 10 years or something right uh, but if, effectively we've promised to subsidy to, to subsidize these technologies and these industries forever um and now that the industries sort of have gotten their bag um, and the environmentalists are seeing what the actual scale effects of deploying these technologies looks like. I think we're going to see a lot more sort of intra-coalition conflict over the uh, the actual build out of the technology than we've seen to date. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I just think that um, you know a lot of this made more sense when I I think personally when the environmental movement was willing to work with the natural gas industry. One, because I think it was just fundamentally more honest about what was physically possible to maintain reliability on the grid. Um, and also because it looked like a coherent plan, you know, and and making that argument to say, and this is how we're going to phase out coal, but continue to build things, I think was uh, probably, A, it was successful, right? Um, and now uh, that we have, on the one hand, a lot of coal coming offline, and now it is getting harder to build the gas turbines. It's really gonna put the squeeze on the, I would say like policy-based evidence around <laughs> reliability and the grid. But you said something that really piqued my interest because I think about this a lot. And I think about it when I think of your Twitter bio, um, which is you talked about this sort of like smallholder prosumer, um, idea that is born in the 70s in a reaction to the energy crisis and uh you know the 30 glorious years of industrialization that took over the west and i think that's sort of like the return of thomas jefferson as like uh, i think as like a political ideological force in american history whereas before even if it was dressed in the language of Jefferson as the New Deal was, it was really pursuing like Hamiltonian means. So you have in your bio, I have it pulled up here, you describe yourself as an eco-modernist, we've already done that, uh, Promethean, Hamiltonian, Schumpeterian, Schumpeterian uh, meliorist. So, dude, what's up? <laughs> um, first of all, that is exactly, I think, the right way to understand not just sort of American politics, uh, but industrialization and modernization generally as a kind of tug of war between the the Jefferson and the Hamilton school of mm -hmm. uh, of sort of nation building and economic growth uh, that that we can get into. I'm forgetting who the theorist was that said, that American modernization and policy in particular has always been Jeffersonian in the rhetoric and Hamiltonian in the substance. Which Michael I think Lind, I believe. Uh, that, sound, yeah. that sounds right, yeah. And that is certainly something he would say. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah, credit to, to Michael Lind there. Um, but uh, I suppose we'll get to the Hamilton and the, and, and the Jefferson of it all. Um, so, the, the the sort of Promethean Hamiltonian Schumpeterian meliorist thing 
um, is just my deeply elitist itself and obnoxious way to <laughs> emphasize that uh, that these technologies, or, or sorry, to, to emphasize that these ideas, the ideas behind eco-modernism are old ideas. Um, mm. you know, the, the sort of stories that we tell about the relationship between humans and technology and nature, which I think is fundamentally what eco-modernism is about, are old ideas. Um, the idea that, uh, that humans are special on earth, um, uh, is an idea that can be traced to all sorts of sort of ancient traditions and, and Greek mythology and other, and sort of other mythologies, mm -hmm. including, you know, my favorite, the, the myth of Prometheus, mm -hmm. um, who, uh, who steals fire from the gods to give to humans, uh, you know, and which is, you know, very related to our, our understanding of our own biological evolution and the role that fire played in allowing us to consume more protein and increasing the size mm -hmm. of our brains and, and, and increasing our cognitive abilities, uh, precisely the evolutionary effects that made humans the sort of dominant species on this planet. Um, you know, so the, the eco-modernism in, in that sense is not merely sort of a, uh, a sort of post-modern reaction to the post-modern environmental metaphysics. Um, these are these are sort of old ideas uh, and, mm -hmm. and uh, that, that continually crop up through throughout sort of history and our and our understanding of not just industrial modernity but of uh, of human existence in the first place. Um, obviously, much of the modernism in eco modernism occurs much after Prometheus, which is why we jump all the way to the debate that you're gesturing at between uh, Hamilton and Jefferson, um, who didn't just argue about the national debt and about mm -hmm. the presidency, uh, but argued over what kind of nation they were trying to build. Uh, again, mm -hmm. not just in terms of uh, legally or constitutionally, but what kind of culture they were trying to cultivate. And for Jefferson, that was very explicitly an agrarian society. It was not an industrial one. It was not an urbanized one. And it was not a financialized one. For Hamilton, just the opposite. This was going to be a, a, a urban, industrialized, financialized economy and culture. We were, people mm -hmm. were going to live in cities. We we're going to have highly productive factories. We we're going to be a, a, a trader in the in the global market. Jefferson wanted very little to do uh, either diplomatically or economically with uh, with other countries. Um, and that is the that is the debate that has sort of framed our politics in every era since then. And which party represents the Jeffersonians and the and versus the Hamiltonians switches back and forth. I'm glad you mentioned Mike because uh, Mike Lynn's book um, "Land of Promise" tracks mm -hmm. that tracks that uh, sort of that back and forth really well. And I think that you know what you mentioned about sort of Republicans and the conservative response to environmentalism is, is really relevant here because I think we're at a bit of a, a not inflection point, but a bit of a muddle in uh, who is representing sort of Jefferson and who is representing Hamilton in our 2023 debates about the environment. Yeah. Because again, it was it's very obvious that in the in say the 1960s and 70s, when the new left is cohering around sort of small scale self-subsistence solar farms on the rooftops and small organic farms that they are just the the megaphone for jeffersonian thinking in the mm -hmm. in the sort of post-war decades 
But now, you know, those ideas, sort of, or, you know, or, organic farming um, and, and and renewable energy are large-scale industrialized systems. Uh, and so they don't really know what to do with themselves in an ideologically or sort of metaphysically coherent way. Um, uh, at, at the same time, Republicans and sort of conservatives have been uh, have been opposed to the sort of again very sort of small scale anti industry, uh, you know sort of anti economic growth ideas of environmentalism for so long um, that uh, th that there's less of a, a a sort of cohort and and less mm -hmm. of a sort of discipline around thinking about the environment on the political right, at least in the United States and in many other sort of um, Western countries. Um, and so it's just a mess. It's just a, it's just a mess in terms <laughs> of uh, what people believe uh, mm -hmm. in, in terms of where, the, uh, where the lineage in their philosophy and in their metaphysics comes from. And I think that shows up in really important sort of practical materialist ways. Um, uh, for you know, for instance, like you mentioned, with this conflict over subsidizing the hell out of low carbon technologies, but then refusing um, to regulate, uh, uh, re refusing to actually build them, or refusing to actually license the the technologies that we're subsidizing. Mm -hmm. um, that that's just sort of one way in which this um, confusion about the legacy of these ideas, whether it's renewable energy or human stewardship over nature come from? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think to me, it seems like uh, the real debate in my mind between Hamilton and Jefferson is um, one about a sort of like, I would understand, I mean, Hamilton was like sort of radically anti-democratic in his own way, uh, but he, uh, it was almost had to do with the practical circumstances of the American economy at the time and his anxieties about American elites and whether or not their wealth and the gaining of it could be welded to the uplift of the state and the populace and how that should work. And Jefferson had very different, almost classical concerns that were not practical per se, but I think are very worth um, entertaining in that he understood like why he liked an agrarian society was the idea that even if you were, let's say, perhaps more poor, you had your own property as a bulwark against the larger forces in society. That if no one could strip you of the reproduction of your own life, then you could live more virtuously and more conducively uh, to a long lasting republic. Um, and I think that that's part of what they're responding to. And now the debate is in some ways still within the shadow realm of that initial debate of an early republic that is in many ways uh, pre-modern or still, I mean, steam engines haven't show up and all sorts of things are, are quite different. Um, but we have those same debates now when it comes to citing renewables and the relationship Americans are supposed to have to these large entities that want a lot of agrarian farmland to build what they're supposed to. And so I think there seems to be a crisis of national identity that goes so deep as to trouble the waters between this fundamental debate that's been going on since the founding. 
you, you said it extremely well, better better than I can or have yet in this conversation. Uh, but I think that's exactly the conflict is that you have, again, sort of conventional environmentalist ideas that renewable energy is good. And so we need policies that promote and subsidize it. Um, the, these are at, at their base, sort of old Jeffersonian ideas about the sort of scale of uh, of technology and human endeavor, but the the argument the the policies that are being crafted are extremely Hamiltonian, mm -hmm. um, uh, ex you know, sort of extremely large scale and industrialized. Um, meanwhile, the actual so uh, the actual constituency that lives closer to the land in the heartland that grows most of the food that lives in rural areas. Um, are not the environmentalists. They're they're mm -hmm. not the they're not the party or the constituency that is pushing to subsidize the hell out of low carbon energy technologies. In fact, very often, uh, the the workers who are ranchers or farmers see wind farms and solar farms and transmission lines as encroachments upon their property and, and mm -hmm. upon their sort of way of life. That's not at all a hard and fast rule. You know, there's lots of wind in no. Texas and, and Nebraska and, and sure. Iowa. Um, so the these sort of systems do not have to um, it's, you know, it's not sort of, it's not sort of zero sum in that way. Well, um, you're not going to get 100 percent agreement on every single thing that happens. Right. There will always be faction. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's so bizarre um, to, to see the um, the how, how baffled environmentalists are um, when you've got this, again, very sort of elite project, like, you know, sort of progressive mm -hmm. environmentalists are part of the party that controls most of the wealth in this country and is and is deeply urbanized, um, yeah. promoting technologies that are extremely large scale and, ex and extremely industrial and globalized themselves. We get most of our batteries and solar panels from China and, and most of our wind from abroad as well mm -hmm. um, uh, at, at the end of the day. Um, promoting policies that are rebuilding the infrastructure of the of the countryside of of farmlands of of the rural parts of America of these there's just so much sort of both um ideological and sort of cultural confusion um mm -hmm. happening that leads to these sort of again these very sort of real materialist uh conflicts mm -hmm. um uh it's and it's not uh it, it shouldn't be at all surprising I think um, that we that we've gotten to this point, uh, which gets to a little bit of the of the Joseph Schumpeter in my bio. There we go. Was, there it is. <laughs> um, I knew I was forgetting something. Um, who was uh, a contemporary of of Keynes and Hayek, who was much less focused on sort of uh, on, on mo monetary issues and more mm -hmm. focused on what he called the the waves of innovation. Um, uh, one of which, uh, you know, was the steam engine, and and then uh, and then uh, another was the the internal combustion engine. Uh, and he described economic growth, economic history, as these cycles, these sort of multi-decadal cycles of uh, of innovation that are sort of powered by general purpose technologies. Again, something like the internal combustion engine, or the um, or the you know the the cotton gin, um, mm -hmm. or Later, uh, or or the uh, or or electricity, or later the um, the 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 transistor and the internet and digital technologies um, that you know the sort of day to day squabbles about uh, sort of pie sharing and tax rates and things like that are all in tow of these much bigger forces propelled by uh, by a general purpose technology innovation. 
it's hard to know in advance what they are, but you know, maybe nanotech, biotech, AI, uh, you know, sure. will will power the the sort of next wave. And he wrote about these um, these churns in these waves in technological change as a force of creative destruction is what is what he called it. And I think we're you know sort of in the midst of one such again long multi-decadal era of creative destruction right now as we uh, innovate in low carbon alternatives to fossil fuels and and deploy them uh mm -hmm. we are which we are actively doing in the united states and around the world um and there's quite a bit of conflict about that both political conflict and technological conflict and ideological conflict and the and the the idea that there wouldn't be, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the idea that there's a there's a very obvious sort of right side of history, a sort of mm -hmm. an energy transition um, that we must sort of like accelerate in a linear fashion towards our decarbonized future. Um, that would be the sort of aberration in the development of the of the human story not the the sort of mess and muddle that we find ourselves in yeah no i think that's a that's a really good point and it actually brings me to something so i was going through some of your writing before i had you on um over my coffee to rouse myself from my coma um uh and one of the things that you and i have both written a lot about is climate anxiety as one of the sort of ideological like prime movers on some of this. And I thought you've written very thoughtfully, by the way, everybody you can find Alex's writing in the show notes, plenty of links for you to click, including finding him on Twitter. Um, but uh, one of the things that I thought you very thoughtfully talked about is the way in which uh, these anxieties produces a kind of scientism that ends up undermining its own causes. So I was wondering if you could talk, elaborate on that a little bit and sort of what you see as the major ideological and perhaps material challenges facing this uh, widespread anxiety. Yeah, so I, I got sort of interested in climate anxiety, especially over the last few years um, as you know, there've been books written about it at this point. Mm -hmm. There are psychologists who specialize in treating climate anxiety. I have, mm -hmm. I've read their work and I've, I've talked to them. Uh, the obvious avatar for sort of today's climate anxiety is Greta Thunberg, mm -hmm. who about five years ago expresses a deep and sort of violent climate anxiety of her own and voices that as motivation for her political activism mm -hmm. and she gets sort of showered with acclaim and with positions and with publications and 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 really becomes the figure the symbol of what it means mm -hmm. to be a good concerned climate citizen uh this uh depressed anxious young woman mm -hmm. um is is positioned as the correct way to think about climate change yeah. um i think this is a particularly sort of triggering phenomenon for me because it recalled my own climate anxiety in high mm. school and, and college. You know, I was in high school in 2006 when I watched An Inconvenient Truth and Al Gore said that we have 10 years to get to 100% renewable energy technology. Mm -hmm. That that was over 15 years ago. Um, but I, I bought it with sort of hook, line and sinker at the time uh, as I as I read Gore, as I read McKibben, as I read Elizabeth Colbert, 
all of whom were warning about the end of the world or the sort of in, incompatibility with industrial modernity um, and sustained human uh, civilization due to the to the climate threat. Um, so I, I, it's been a long time, um, and I think it would surprise a lot of my readers. But I remember what it feels like to to be anxious about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that it's motivating. <laughs> I don't think that uh, I, I don't think that it is healthy. And I don't think that it is a most importantly, I do not think that it is a accurate reaction to the mm -hmm. physical science, to our physical understanding of the science of climate change, mm -hmm. which tell which tells us that the earth is absolutely warming, it is affecting weather, it is affecting crop patterns, it is affecting sea level rise, it is, it is affecting ecosystems and species and human systems, but that these are mostly sort of gradual and linear and linear processes, not ones uh, that sort of accelerate over time or have sharp tipping points that throw us into cataclysm or states of mm -hmm. uninhabitability on on Earth um, or or on parts of Earth. Um, it, and it is a uh, phenomenon. It is an emergent phenomenon of our abundance, our prosperity, and our wealth, which are also the shields of fr from those mm -hmm. impacts. Uh, which, which, which are why even as the Earth has warmed and populations have skyrocketed over the last couple centuries, the death toll from natural disasters has declined in ab absolute terms. It's declined mm -hmm. by over ninety percent over the last century, and it's declined significantly over the last thirty years as emissions. Uh, have skyrocketed and, and as the as concern over over climate change has skyrocketed along with it. Um, so I, I think that the the sort of catastrophic view of climate change is is always attached to this again the sort of conventional environmentalist ideological project um, that you know humans need to restrain our ambitions. We we need to contain our technological adventure. We need to slow economic growth or or degrow. You know, so to this day, you have Jane Goodall and Paul Ehrlich still saying that we need to reduce the size of the human population. They're less explicit today about what would go into doing that than they used yeah. to be. But um, Naomi Oreskes just published something on this, didn't she? Or yeah, like yeah, a book on it or something? Naomi Oreskes was just published in Scientific American, sort of regurgitating yeah. the same overpopulation fears that were expressed and sort of again widely rebuffed in the in the 1960s and 70s you know these ideas are, are still with us uh they're, they're still with us today um and uh, and and so I, I think that that's where climate catastrophism comes from and of course when you amplify climate catastrophism to the world you will end up with some number of Greta Thunbergs, of of mm -hmm. some, you know, especially children. Like I was, I was a high schooler, same age as Greta Thunberg when I first sort of started reading about climate change and got scared about it. Um, uh, you will, you'll get, especially kids, take you seriously when you say that the end of the world is not coming. That you should think about not having kids because there might not be a future for them. Mm -hmm. um, that that is, I think, a deeply fucked up thing to say to anybody, yeah. especially especially a, kids, a, especially a, a, especially kids, especially a generation of students that we are sort of conscripting into our activist armies and and, mm -hmm. and sort of building up monuments of. Um, and it's not just it, it's not just something that happens in the sort of popular activism in the form of Greta Thunberg or in, in sort of popular writing on the subject. But you, you know, again, I've literally talked to sort of 
psychologists who specialize in treating climate anxiety. And what they say is that the first thing you need to do is to tell them that their fears are correct. Mm-hmm. You need to tell them that their fear about the end of the world is is the correct interpretation of climate science. And A, it is not. Yeah. B, uh, that is deeply unrelated to any uh, any sort of sensible therapeutic practice that I've ever heard of. We, yeah. you, you're not. I, I don't think you're supposed to be inculcating an external locus of control when treating depression <laughs> or anxiety or suicidal <laughs> thoughts. Now, the one caveat I would add to this is that I I don't. I wouldn't say that the uh, that the climate crisis, whether the crisis itself or communication about it, is the main cause of the of the increased rate of suicidality, anxiety, and depression in uh, in Americans, in Westerners, no, in teenagers. Too many other things happening. There, there's too many other things happening, but it is a thing on which that anxiety and that depression clings to it is it is mm-hmm. yet another thing and it, and it, it, more than that it's a thing that i think climate scientists many of them climate advocates climate activists have been all too ready to capitalize on and i and the more i the, the more i looked into this the less sort of understanding and patience i got with the sort of valorization of greta thunberg's anxiety with the pointing to statistics about suicide and depression from climate activists, I, I find it just, I find it kind of gross uh, and, and, and appalling. And I, I got to a point where I needed to uh, to say some things about it. And it's very delicate, obviously, um, because especially for the, um, uh, for, the, for the children, but also the adults who express a, a climate anxiety, um, they, they feel that it's deeply valid uh, and, and deeply personal. But I, but I do think that it is um, that it is cultivated for the purposes of not validating the anxiety, but validating the catastrophist science that must be true um, mm-hmm. in order for the ideological project um, to, to to endure. Because if sort of the catastrophist read of climate scientists of, of climate science is untrue, then all of the sort of millenary and extremist claims about what we must do to confront climate change uh, must not be valid either. And so that apparently is why we have to tell kids that the world is ending. Right. And I think so. I think a couple interesting things happen to our politics around that, too. Like my major gripe with all of this is that it ends up like being an end run around the agonism and muddling difficulty of democracy. And it does it in a few ways. Like the first one is whenever you get kids involved, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to put my ideas into this child so that when you criticize my ideas, I can say, you wouldn't be mean to a child, would you? Right? So that's the, there's the human shield thing that's happening. Um, And then on the other hand, it's the, there's no time for debate. And then the third thing that happens is the I believe in science crowd that seems to be the most credulous in their relationship to science and the scientific method. Um, uh, And what they want to do is they want to say that politics is as neutral as science. It just so happens that that neutrality exists solely on their side of the field. Uh, and nowhere else. So it is both neutral and true and completely unambiguous that they are right all of the time. And it is a way to Trojan horse truth claims into a debate without having to 
deal with scrutiny at any level. I'm I'm glad that you brought up the sort of muddling through of the of the small D democratic process because that brings me to the last concept in my Twitter bio, meliorism, which is uh, which is an idea sort of born especially out of uh, the American pragmatist philosophical school, mm -hmm. the writings of John Dewey and others, uh, who who wrote about democracy and deliberation um, as uh, as as messy, uh, to, you know, mm -hmm. to be extremely brief about it, um, as a as, as a non-idealized sort of politics of possibility as opposed to politics of uh, of idealization, and the the problem in I think not just environmentalism or sort of modern progressivism, but all sort of political ideologies sure. is a is a tendency towards idealization and a tendency towards sort of zero sum thinking and, and a tendency towards purism, which mm -hmm. I think is what happens when uh, when you have a uh, an understanding of the scientific motivators of your political agenda. Um, that is, you know, it's it's sort of complicated, but that's a, that's even easier for Western progressives today, because you know, sort of due to a, a whole bunch of sort of sorting effects that we don't have time to get into here. You know, most highly more most highly educated people are on some sort of left end of the spectrum. You know, sure, sort of yeah. most climate scientists certainly um, sort of uh, identify with uh, the center left or the left, at least. Uh, again, not not a hard and fast rule, but that's increasingly the case in the mm -hmm. United States and, and around the world. So it's very easy for a sort of progressive today to construct a theory of the world in which the scientists are saying that the world is ending and therefore we need to listen to Al Gore and Bill McKibben who say that we need to transition to 100% renewable energy technology in the next decade and we need to sue the fossil fuel industries out of existence and send their executives to The Hague because the, the science says so. Um, and that and and where as you say love, where love, the, to love to derive an ought from an is exactly yeah and then <laughs> so where this as you say where the science says so is where most of that thinking actually breaks down because it is it is not just sort of inconsistent you know the the sort of mm -hmm. broad left scientific attitude towards nuclear power or, or geoengineering or methane emissions or genetic modification or lab-grown meat or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. it, it has no fealty to the physical science whatsoever. It doesn't even have fealty to sort of dialectical materialist science in a way that like that Marx and Leibniz ha uh, understood. But oh, no, that's anything, been dead forever. That's been dead forever right, yeah. over there. Yeah. Uh, right, that's been dead since Frankfurt and, and, and yeah. before. Um, but more than that, it just has no understanding of what the institutions, culture, or methods of science actually are, or, mm -hmm. or, or the sort of deep confusion that is evident in the phrase, we believe in science. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and again, the, it's understandable um, where these impulses and these positions and these senses of identity come from. Again, you know, like I also was raised in a middle-class household in a rich country by academics, you know, taught to care about the environment and, and to care about the marginalized and to listen to the highly educated credentialed experts and trust mm -hmm. in what they have to say uh, and, and, and take them seriously. And that led me to the conclusion that the world was 
ending and that we had to do X, Y, and Z to stop it and listen to Al Gore. And, you know, we understand where where that comes from. It's the it's the sort of lack of curiosity and the la the lack of sort of interrogation of the contradictions within that within those constructions that, especially in this day and age, I find very frustrating. Uh, yeah. Now now that we are you know well past. 10 years since An Inconvenient Truth, which was itself 10, uh, 10 years after the Kyoto Protocol, which itself was 10 years after James Hansen's testimony to Congress on climate change in 1988, which itself was 15 years after my boss's uncle, William Nordhaus, first proposed two degrees as the, as the, as the climate threshold. You know, these are not new debates. Um, mm -hmm. th these, are, these are not sort of new uh, sort of understandings uh, or, or uh, these are not new understandings of the climate problem, but we keep, um, we keep having the, the same debates about response, debates about what the science says that we've been having for decades, uh, and it's getting annoying. Yeah, it is annoying. And I think, um, you know, this is sort of the last comment I'll make, and then I want to ask you a, a closing question about uh, breakthrough and stuff like that. Um, you and I interacted briefly through email about the movie How to Blow Up Pipeline. And one of, I think, the worst lessons that people took out of the 60s and 70s was taking the highly moral, highly successful, uh, deeply Christian antinomianism of people like Martin Luther King and also his book, ideological forebear, Henry David Thoreau, and then saying, we're going to do a secular version of that that is based on not dying. And I think it ends up not just being uh, annoying, but at scale with these anxieties and stuff like that, the politics of fear becomes demoralizing. And I think if sustained for long enough, potentially injurious to a high trust culture. Um, obviously, it's not the only thing in the water here, as we were saying about what's going on with the kids, but I would say that it certainly doesn't help. Um, and that's something that all of us, eco-modernists or not, who have a commitment to sort of the ongoingness of humanity, uh, should do well to consider not just rebuttals to, but alternative projects for, because this stuff remains, tragically, I think, the dominant narrative. And so sort of on the alternatives for what's breakthrough up to these days? Like give me an update before we wrap up here. Yeah. You know, breakthrough, we, we didn't get into the sort of chronological history too much in this conversation, but you know, we more or less sort of founded eco-modernism at this point, almost a decade ago, we sort mm -hmm. of, we founded eco-modernism in, in 2008 and developed a sort of growing and expanding policy agenda around making clean energy cheap and growing more food on less land and sort of remaking environmental politics for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. All of that sort of cohered into what we now call eco-modernism in 2015 with the publication of an eco-modernist manifesto. And uh, today, almost a decade after that publication, we find ourselves sort of deeply embedded in in sort of hard technology and policy debates about uh, about um, about low carbon technologies and infrastructure um, as well as um, you know conversations like this actually as well mm -hmm. as efforts to continue to unpack and deconstruct the the ways in which the bad 
thinking about humans, technology, and environment crops up from really sort of influential persons and institutions to this day, whether that's in the sort of degrowth ideas or the technophobia surrounding genetic modification or nuclear power or the bad thinking that goes into the sort of we believe in science crowd and the assuredness of that crowd in their sort of Hegelian vision for their political project mm -hmm. and, and their refusal to deal with the messiness of politics and the messiness of sort of genuinely held cultural and ideological disagreements. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a lot to, to take on um, for, for an institution. Fortunately, we think eco-modernism is growing. There are sort mm -hmm. of eco-modernist societies all around the world. Breakthrough right. is growing. We have a office in Berkeley where I work, and we also have a brand new office in Washington, D.C. that is tackling things like regulatory reform at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, tackling things like the Farm Bill, which we think sort of significantly over-invests in solutions like carbon farming or, you know, sort of carbon ranching and sequestering sure. carbon soils and under-invests in things like low-carbon fertilizers and precision agriculture and alternative proteins and things like that. We are working on permitting reform and, and we are working on sort of uh, using policy, which we continue to think really, really matters to increase the sort of scalability and affordability of environmentally sustainable technologies. Um, so, you know, I could go on and on and on and on about all the specifics of that, but it is, you know, at, uh, at once a, a project to affect policy and steer, uh, if not determine, the trajectory <laughs> of, uh, of what we think are really promising sustainable technologies. And it is a is a project to to build a new kind of thinking ab about human stewardship over the natural world, and you know whatever uh, the new sort of Promethean general purpose technologies that we are creating in the world today do in the world. Yeah, great. I love that. So everybody can go check out Alex's work at Breakthrough. Um, I believe when you click on his name uh, it, that it has. Everything's written there, including some stuff he's written elsewhere. Um, check out Breakthrough Generally. You guys just had a new issue of your journal come out that looks absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I see some friendly names in there, like Lee Phillips, um, whose article was fantastic. I just read it the other day. And I will also put links in the show notes for how you can support Breakthrough in what it is doing because they are punching above their weight class and have yet to have the multi-billion dollar treasure trove that the big four environmental groups get access to. Um, so that being said, Alex, thank you for joining me. Everybody, remember, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant, and we will see you next time.